Good afternoon. I'd like to like to encourage each of you to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. We're going back to the book of Hosea. Last, <clears throat> last week we spent some time looking at the first three, ver- or three chapters of the book of Hosea. Chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3. And noting the redemption, uh, the redeeming love that is found in these passages towards God's people uh, and given by God. We noted in this time, as we, as we were studying through this, as we were surveying uh, this, this chapter, that Hosea was a prophet that was sent to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. While he was there, he was also working towards the end of the, the time of Amos's prophecy. So Amos has been on the scene and prophesying, uh, and at this point he's gone away, and, and Hosea is starting to really come in and bring his message. This is around the year 750 to 725 B.C. And in this time we see a message being brought that is, that is a, quite a, a vivid description of the relationship of the children of Israel with, with God at this time. There's some keys to understanding what is going to be what is said and what we're going to continue to read in verses uh, or chapters 4 through 7 this afternoon. And the key to understand this is in these first three cha- uh, chapters. One of these keys is to realize that Hosea and his wife, Gomer, their relationship is an illustration of God's experience with the children of Israel. And they are there to serve as an object lesson, to teach the children of Israel um, that God is going to show them love. And God has a redeeming love for His people, even though they have traveled far from Him. So in those first three chapters we saw, in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 9, that the rejection of Israel, Israel's rejection of God, I should say, is symbolized by the names of Homer and Hosea and Gomer's children. I struggled with that last week, and I'm probably going to struggle with it again. Hosea and Gomer's children, uh, their names symbolize the rejection of the Israelites from God. And as we kept going on, we saw that a restoration was foretold. Even though they had rejected him, there would be a restoration. Uh, restoration. Their unfaithfulness was described as that of a a wife who commits harlotry. And that restoration was then again described as the one who's being cured of idolatry. And then finally we saw that their restoration was symbolized as the harlot taken back to be a wife in Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. If we can remember these things as we study through this book, that the the analogies that are used were used to teach a lesson of the redemptive love of God and how God viewed the relationship of the Israelites with him as one who had been faithful but went off into harlotry uh, and, and one that would eventually be restored by God's love. We can understand the rest of the book and the, and the message that it contains. A message that proclaims, uh, with this analogy, the indictment of Israel. Uh, the way God viewed her sins and the warning that punishment was going to be following that. But again, there's going to be a state of future restoration. So I hope to continue our look in the, in the book of Hosea this afternoon. And as we study through chapters 4 through 7, we're going to notice God's, we're going to be looking primarily at God's indictment of Israel for her sins. And that's what we see in these, in these verses. First with a charge against Israel. Read with me, this is kind of a lengthy reading, but read with me to chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 15. Listen to the words of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field, along with the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. And let no one find fault, and let no one other, none other reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priests. So you will stumble by, stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because they have rejected knowledge. And also, I also will reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. And I also will forget your children. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire towards their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, and burn incense on the hills under the oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot. Or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or go to Bethaven and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their liquor gone, they played the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings, and they will become ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priest. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you, and for you have been, been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on table. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defied it, defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. And now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah will become like, like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he is determined to follow man's command. Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When, Eph when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like the lion to Ephraim, and like the young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly... Seek me. So this is a scathing charge against Israel. Very, very straight to the point and, and not really holding anything back sort of, sort of charge to Israel. They had gone a long way from God. 
And it's against the nation as a whole. There, will be, there is no truth, there is no mercy, there is no knowledge in all of the land. Knowledge of God in all the land. And so all, those, all these forms of wickedness are now running rampant and running wild. And so we see not only, though, are we going to focus and say, nobody's really exempt from this. The whole nation is, is in sin. But now we're going to focus our view down. Verses 4 through 14 of chapter 4 says, But you priests... The priests that should have been a a light to these people should have been turning these people back. The priests in particular have a charge against them. It says it does no good to contend with the people, for the people do not respect their priests. The priests themselves have rejected knowledge, uh, and that leads to their destruction, and it leads to the destruction of the people. The priests are even feeding off of the sins of the people and increasing their own spiritual adultery. And then there is a warning to Judah in the south in this passage, a very specific warning to not be like Israel. It says in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 4, said, telling the Judah, leave Ephraim, leave Israel alone. Leave Israel to her idols. Just let her go off, but don't be like Israel. We see an argument again about the priests and the rulers and the people. They have been made a snare. They're, they don't have any help. And their idolatry has led them to stumble and even has caused Judah to stumble as well. They're talking about, look at how outspread your, your sin has taken. Not only is it uh, that you have fallen so far away from me, but you are even dragging others down with you. Uh, people from another nation, the, the, from, from Judah, are being uh, affected as well. And so God has withdrawn himself from them. And this goes back to that statement that they, that they knew so well in, in Deuteronomy when they were told when they first come into land to go up onto the mountains, onto the uh, of Ebal, and, and I lost the name right as I thought about it. They told him to go up onto the mountains and say, to declare the blessings and the curses, to call down to one another from one mountain the blessings that, it, that if you follow God's law, the blessings that come from that, and from the other mountain the curses for if you turn away from God's law, you will be cursed. That's exactly what is happening to them. He has withdrawn himself from them. There will be no increase. There will be... Uh, so many troubles, they won't have the blessings that they had grown accustomed to because they had turned their back on God. And so in Hosea chapter 5, verses 8 through 15, we see the impending sentence that is coming down. Ephraim shall be laid waste. Again, that's another name for, for Israel. Ephraim will be laid waste, and Judah is not going to escape either. And we see this eventually happening in the form of the Assyrian captivity that takes over the tribe of Israel and the, the Babylonian captivity that Judah holds out when the Assyrians come in. They, they, because of God, they are able, they are blessed with a longer time, but eventually they give in to the same sins and, and follow the same path and are taken into Babylonian captivity. So it says that Ephraim is going to be laid waste. Judah is not going to escape either. And like a lion, God is going to come upon them. He's going to tear them away. God will do, this God will do until they confess their sin and diligently seek Him. And that's what we see. And, and eventually, and, and God tells them, as we've, we've already talked a little bit about in chapters 1 through 3, there is going to be this time of restoration. But that restoration has to come with repentance. Just as with the, the uh, wife that comes back, she has to, there's a time of a period of probation where she has to show her repentance in, that, in, verse, or in chapter 3 there. That there will be a time where she, she has no other, no other lover, no other man but that of her husband. And so the people of Israel are going to have to show repentance. And we eventually see this after that 70-year period when they eventually 
come back and they realize how far they've gone and they, they want to come back and not only rebuild the cities, but also to rebuild the people to God. So again, right off the bat, we see this scathing review of who the Israelites had become, where they were at in, in the eyes of God. Going on, as we finish up, we're going to see that their response to God and God's response to that, to that appeal. Read with me chapter 6 uh, through chapter 7. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. And thieves enter in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick of the, with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their heart is like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, they, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hair also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation of their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. And I would re redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me, although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. And this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So we see this, this attempt to make an appeal to the Lord. They, they, they are called to repentance and they, they say, we will repent and the Lord will take care of us. Some of, will, the Lord will, will bandage us. He will heal us even though we are wounded. Some believe these, these three verses are, are Hosea's desperate plea to Israel to repent. Hosea is saying these to them, to, that you, you need to turn back. 
Others think that these are the words of Israel, but they are words that were not sincere. But in either case, the, the verse 4 is what really highlights the level of maturity of Israel. They, it was so shallow. Even if it was a call to repent, or if it was their call that they were going to repent, it was so shallow that it's described in the latter part of verse 4 as the dew which goes away early. It says their loyalty is like the morning cloud. It might be here for a little while, but we know it's not sticking around. And their loyalty to God was not, was not cemented in. They were, they were going to, as it later on would tell us, they would cry out and want to turn to Him, but only for the assembly, only assembling themselves together for the blessings that they were missing out on, for the, for the grain and the new wine that, they had been, that had been taken from them because of their unfaithfulness. The only reason they were really turning back was because of what they had lost. And so we see that they are rejected because of their true condition. Again, faithfulness only being temporary. They, only, they offered sacrifices, but they didn't show mercy. They didn't truly know God. They transgressed the covenant. They became defiled. And they even went as far as to start influencing others. And when God would have healed them, when He would have, as they said, as it said in the beginning, would have bandaged them and, and taken care of them, their iniquity just got worse. They just continued and continued down this path. Idolatry, alliances with pagan nations, rejection of God's efforts to discipline them, all these things were charges that are brought against Israel. And like Judah, or excuse me, like a judge, like a judge in court, God has brought his charges against the unfaithful Israel. And like an unfaithful spouse who committed adultery, Israel has, has done the same things to God. So as we continue looking at this passage, this is the context of our, our study this afternoon. Let's consider God's warning of punishment that is going to befall Israel. And, but before we move on to past that, before we go to, to the, the, the remainder of these warnings, we really need to finish looking at what is reviewed here in these verses. There's some very key passages in this section that, that are blaringly warnings to us as well. We know that this, ma this message was given by Hosea from the Lord to the, the, the nation of Israel. But as his people today, we still have a very real need to listen to this message and understand that we can face the same condemnation that they faced. Notice in chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 1, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land, and leading back up to, or, and tying to that, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This verse, like so many other verses in the Bible, emphasizes the importance of knowing God's Word. And I think sometimes we... We mistake knowing God's Word with memorizing God's Word or having read it at one time in our lives. Knowing God's Word is a much more encompassing phrase than I think we, we always give it credit to. Over in James chapter 1, James chapter 1 and verse 21. We read this. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains in wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. 
Whenever we know God's word, it is a word that has to be implanted, ingrained into our, our very being. Something that affects the way that we make our everyday decisions. Something that affects the way we view the problems that will come up in our life. The, the, the things that we are constantly faced with on each day need to be filtered through a knowledge of God's word that is going to affect the way we react to those things. And so these are key passages for, for them, but they're key passages for us to, as well. And we, should do, we would do well to ask ourselves, how is my knowledge? Not just how is my memorizing, and now how, how is my, my setting down and reading, how is my knowledge of God's word in the way that it is applied to my life, in the way that it is applied to my heart? The next thing I want us to see is in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. The context here is that of a warning to Judah. Even though Israel was the primary recipient of this message from Hosea, there's a, there's a context here that gives the idea of a, of a warning to Judah to stay away from Israel. Don't model yourselves. Don't follow down the same path. Just stay away from Israel because they are follow, falling so far from God. There often comes a time when, when we have to reevaluate the relationships that we have with those that might be bringing us down. You know, we, we oftentimes, I think, we really focus on that with our children. Say, who are you going to choose for your friends while you're at school? Who, who's, the, the friends that you choose could make, make you to lead uh, or lead you to make bad choices. But this is something that we need to apply even as adults. Are the people that we surround ourselves with, are they going to help us get to heaven? Or are they going to hinder that? Is there, is there a possibility that in, in even our attempts to restore one who is erring, that we can be brought down by the same things that influence them? That, or that influence them to make their decisions. So this, this idea that is talked about here in chapter 5, the idea of, of Judah, stay away from Ephraim, is still an, an idea that is applicable to us. In fact, we see similar wording in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 13. It says, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetousness or an idolater or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You know, having, having a, an understanding of what the Old Testament teaches is so important for us to understand what the New Testament teaches. And the idea of church discipline has been so badly butchered over the years uh, to, to seem as our discipline of the one that is in sin. It is our job to go and to give them the proverbial spanking that's going to make them ashamed for what they did. But that is not the purpose of church discipline. The church discipline is for the purpose of building up the whole. The same reason why Judah was told, don't follow after Israel. Don't go to, to, to them and don't make the same mistakes they're making. The discipline was for Judah, not Israel. Again, as we keep on reading, it says in, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, that their faithfulness was like a morning cloud. There's a lot of times in our lives where we can have this same sort of faithfulness. Maybe we are convicted of a sin in our heart. Maybe it's something that, that we know we've done that wasn't right. And, and maybe we, we spoke out of anger. We, we spoke out of, out of emotion that was an ungodly of, uh, emotion. And we realized 
that was wrong. That's something that we need to repent of. But yet, the repentance that is there is, is only as long-lived as the scenario plays, doesn't play back into it. Maybe we, we have a, a tendency to, while we're driving down the road, have a little bit of road rage. And somebody cuts me off, and, and I'm really going to let them have it if they, if they do that. If they cut me off, if they get in front of me and they go too slow, oh man, I'm going to be right on their bumper, and I'm going to have just a terrible attitude about this. And maybe that after we get home, we go, you know what, that was wrong. That was wrong of me. That, that could have been a soul that, that needed, uh, needed a kind word. That could, you know, I pulled up at the light at him, and I fussed at him. That was so wrong of me. And I'm going to repent of that until the very next day when somebody pulls out in front of me again, and I'm going to go through the whole uh, motion again. That's kind of the idea that we have here with the children of Israel, that they, their faithfulness was so short-lived, it was described as the morning cloud. It was here for a second, and then it was gone. When we are, when we are quick to profess repentance, maybe we should take a step back and do as the, as the children of Israel did much later in the book of, in the book of Nehemiah. When they, when they, instead of coming to God and just saying we were wrong for what we did, they spent hours in His Word, opening it, standing for this whole time, and being so pricked to the heart that they were moved to godly sorrow, that they were having to be told not to cry. They were having to be trying to, to comfort them and understand that that day was a great and glorious day because such a turning back to God was taking place. Uh, people were being rebuilt in that situation. So sometimes we may be too quick to profess repentance, but not actually repent in our lives. So how faithful to the Lord are we being? Another one that we want to notice is in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This passage was quoted very often by Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. This was something that Jesus was saying. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it reflects the words that we read over in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 3. Which says, To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. It is not that God did not call for sacrifice. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. He demanded sacrifice. But all the worship in the world, no matter how much that they, that they offered, was never going to cover up a lack of mercy and a lack of love and a lack of true knowledge of God. So it didn't matter if they did everything to the T and they walked down the line uh, in the worship service, if they made the right offerings when they're supposed to make them, if they didn't have a true knowledge of God. Which again, it means that they weren't applying that to their life, what they had read and what they had studied. If they didn't have love and they didn't have mercy, those, those sacrifices meant absolutely nothing to God. And again, these are so applicable to us today. We can come every service. We can be here every time the doors are open. And that is something that God asks us to do. He wants us to be here as often as we possibly can, never forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But we can do that every time and, not have a, and have a lack of knowledge. Not apply what we know 
from his word to our lives, not have love, not have mercy, and us being in this building is not doing us any good if that's the case. So again, we would, we would look at this and, and, and ask ourselves, do we, do we focus intently on the sacrifice? Do we focus intently and only on the worship that we offer up, or do we also focus on mercy and love and a knowledge of God? Hosea chapter 7, verse 2, went on, <clears throat> went on to say, They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. And now their deeds are before me, or now their deeds are all around them, and they are before my face. It is, it is incredibly sad when people choose to sin. But so oftentimes we look at it as if maybe that's something that God doesn't know that I'm doing. Almost like we can hide that from them. It really makes you think back to David. Whenever he had Uriah killed by the sword and he pushed that up. And, and, and it's really hard for anybody to know what David had done that was wrong because he was so far removed from the situation. And it's a battle. People are fighting. People are going to die. Maybe I've hidden this from God. But he hadn't hidden it from God. God had saw exactly from the moment that that desire entered his heart for Bathsheba, the moment that, that he looked upon her uh, from temptation, God, God saw what was going on in David's life. And he takes notice to what was being done. And he takes notice to what we are doing. And a time is going to come when everything that we have done, whether good or bad, even if we feel like it was done in the darkness, done in the shadows behind closed doors, is going to be drug out and put into light. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verse 16 talks about this. Saying on that day, or on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He even talks about it in the book of Revelation, over in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 12. Saying, and I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Our only hope that we can possibly have is not that we are going to hide our sin from God. Our sins are going to be before us. Rather that we can hide our sins in the blood of Christ. Having them covered and forgiven by that ultimate sacrifice that He made. Another point, the last point that we'll look at tonight is in Hosea chapter 7 and verse 8. It says, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Unsavory associations. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. I think we, we would all look at that and go, well, absolutely. You know, there, there's people j just in, in the past month, there's been 30 overdoses on heroin in Nicholasville. None of us are really looking for an opportunity to go and, and hang out and, and make it our, our business to associate with, with drug dealers and drug users. We would look at that and say, well, they're probably going to corrupt some of the things that I believe. I'll be very careful about the kind of react relationship that we have. Certainly, I want to reach out to them. Certainly, I want to be a light to them. But I'm not going to, to simply just yoke my whole life into theirs uh, for fear of what it might do to, to me, what it might do to my family. But we don't really look at that and have those same thoughts when we think of things maybe much broader. That's, that's a very fine stroke that we're looking at. But when we look at a much broader stroke like 
like other nations. In this sense, what about in the nation of, of, of America? We try so hard to, to meld and to mesh and to blend Christianity into America to make, to make true what we so oftentimes say, that, that America is a Christian nation. Sometimes we go, we go and do the same thing that we read about here. We mix ourselves with nations. And we corrupt ourselves by things that many people in America hold as true. Many people in America hold as true that we have the, we have the right to just about anything that we want. We are one of the most uh, entitled, probably is the best word to use, countries in the world. And if we feel like that right is being impended upon, we're going to protest and we're going to stand up. But that's not what we're told in scriptures. We don't look at it as we have the right, but as, opposed, as the opposite of that, we are servants. We are slaves. We have a freedom from sin, but it is not a freedom to do whatever we want. We recognize that we are in servitude to our great King, Jesus Christ. And so there was a danger that was involved with mixing with other nations for the children of Israel in, in the days of Hosea. And there is a danger as well for us today. And we need to heed the, the warnings that we oftentimes find <clears throat> over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read in verses 14 through 18, it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We need to remember the command that was given to, to Judah to stay away from Israel. Part of that command was given because Israel was no longer sanctified as a people of God. Israel was melding into the nations around them, into the pagan beliefs that they had, and really was coming to a point where you, you weren't able to really look at them and go, you're different from everybody else. Because each one of them had their household idol. And each one of them had the, the, these divining, uh, divination wands. And each one of them had the Asherah pole. And they were making themselves so much like the people around them that they weren't even standing out anymore as God's people. And the same thing can happen to us if we are not careful as to who we associate and to the level of which we associate with. Truly, the words of the prophets, like Hosea, are important. You know, so oftentimes we look and say, the Old Testament, just that was written to a different people. It doesn't apply to me. We can't fully understand the New Testament without having an understanding of the Old Testament without having an understanding of what God has done from so long ago in, in even cr creating the world and introducing mankind to himself, in stepping into man's life when man completely disregarded God's law and not ending them at that moment, but rather creating from that point on a slow process in which to bring man back into that relationship with him. Maybe helps us understand just a little bit better when we read passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, that all things have been written for our admonition. That that passage truly means that we need to spend time 
in the Old Testament. We need to understand the Old Testament. And just like Israel, we have been richly blessed. We have, and we talked a little bit in class this morning about that, about the blessings that we have. We don't face the persecution that those, those first century Christians face. We don't have to deal with some of the things they dealt with. We have a high level of blessings. But if we expect those things to remain, then we are expected to remain faithful. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, even unto death. The question is, will we fall after the same example of disobedience we read that in our, in our class in Hebrews chapter 4. The level of disobedience that brought down the, the children of Israel in the desert, the level of disobedience that brought down the children of Israel in, as they were in the divided kingdom, uh, falling into captivity, Hebrews chapter 4, 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We need to make sure that we don't fail for the lack of knowledge. We don't fail because of our faithfulness being limited, being like the morning cloud. We don't fall because we forget the importance of mercy and of love in our service to God. We don't fall because we do consider what, that God remembers the things that we do. And that we don't fail because rather than being the salt of the earth, we become mixed by those of the world and lose our favor. Flavor. Through a careful and serious study of the prophets, we are, we are so much more likely to avoid making these same mistakes that Israel made. Like they are written, written so that we can learn from them, so that we can see the errors they made and avoid those pitfalls. So will we heed those words that were spoken? Will we heed what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 12? Therefore let he who stands take heed lest he fall. You know, I would imagine most of the children of Israel, if you were to ask them, would think they were standing pretty tall. Things were, were, were going to be okay for them. But they fell so far, and that danger is there for us as well. This morning, or this afternoon, if you have not yet taken the opportunity to become a child of God, there is such a real need. There is such a, a, a real need in our lives to, to be covered by that blood, to be saved from our sins, to be redeemed and bought back out of what has, has tainted and, and destroyed our souls and brought about a spiritual death. If that be your desire this afternoon, I would encourage you to let it be known and, and to talk with us so that we can help you in that. But more likely, your desire this, more, this afternoon is to realize that there has been sin in your life and that sin is not hidden from God. Even though nobody else may know about it, one day that sin has to be answered for. And what will your answer be on that great day of judgment? If we have sin that we have not repented of, if we have sin that we just willingly continue, we know that there is, there is no good answer. And there is no sacrifice left for that sin. But as James 5 tells us in verse 16, we can confess that to one another. We can pray about that with one another. And that's the time and the, the opportunity we have right now to let one another know what we are dealing with, what we are struggling with. If there is something that you have done that has separated you from God or maybe has brought reproach upon, the, upon His church, I want to encourage you, come forward right now and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.